Hello and welcome to Glossonomia, conversations about the sounds of speech. I'm Eric Armstrong and with me, of course, is Phil Thompson. Hi, Phil. Howdy there. How you doing? I'm doing great today, actually. Um, this is episode 32 and Got in it. our pattern of switching back and forth between vowels and consonants, we are going to return to consonants and look at the sounds known as affricates. Um, Terrific. So we're leaving our... I think there's some fancy footwork, by the way, there, since the last show we did was about R, but it was about R as a vowel. Yes. And so we are moving back to a consonant from a a sort of a shady vowel. (laughs) Oh, yes. Yes, we are dancing our way around this. Um, So affricates are kind of different, aren't they, Phil? They're not the regular consonant. And when we do the chart in class, uh, I reach the end of it, and the affricates have not been dealt with. Uh And uh, there, there are a few really useful English sounds that don't make it onto the chart. And so uh, the students might have thought they had encountered them before, uh, or they may be bold and say, hey, what about ch? And uh, they'll they'll ask for it. Uh, so then it's a great opportunity to break it down and say, well, what is that? Can we, can we make that out of what we've already got? Just a little point of clarification. You, when you say make it through the chart, I assume you're making it through the pulmonic, the... Exactly. Right. Exactly. So the, our sequence is that we go through every square in the pulmonic consonant chart and see what we could have there. And so in this instance, we we are doing an articulation that it doesn't make it into the chart because it's a paired articulation, a co-articulation. So what what on earth is a (laughs) co-articulation? It sounds, uh, yeah, it it sounds a lot more exciting than it really is. Uh, uh, (laughs) Co-articulation is two articulations happening at once, or in this case, really, one articulation leading into another in such a way that it really makes a unique phoneme. Okay, so um, usually when people first encounter this, they encounter them seeing the symbols, I think, often, that uh, we see a T connected with a a T sound connected with a SH sound, or a D sound connected with a Z sound, and we go TASH or (laughs) DAJ. What, the DAJ? Uh, people get a little confused about that. So yeah. you, you, you say that we start with the first one, and we, we, yes. we start in that place, and we release out of it with the second. Is that yeah, sort of right? Yeah, one way of thinking about it is saying that uh, an affricate is a plosive that has a fricative release, hmm. or it's a fricative that has a plosive beginning. Both true. That that the two things have sort of blended into one recognizable phoneme, or you could say one action that we can recognize is happening seamlessly together. Right. So you use this example of these two very common English ones, which were t, sh, and d, j. Let's just go back over those articulations briefly. So way back with plosives, we had this alveolar closure, the apex of the tongue closing off the flow of air. And that's the stop portion of a stop plosive. 
that we build up some air and let's say some unvoiced air behind it, and then it builds up enough pressure that it releases. We can hear that air coming out, that aspiration, if we make it. And that, that sound is in some way part of that consonant as we recognize it. It doesn't have to be, but it often is. So the second part, the thing we're exploding into now to make the affricate ch, is a post-alveolar fricative, which is sh. I think when we talked about this, we must have mentioned that there's often some lip corner advancement and some grooving in the tongue happening there. But if you built it backwards and you made a sh, and then tried to stop it with a T, you'd feel immediately what a tiny little motion of tongue tip raising that probably entails from sh. And one way to, to make this and to think about it is to start with the fricative, close it, allow it to build up pressure and then explode again. So and it's that opening sequence, that explosion into friction that we're doing when we make those sounds. Rather than making separately. And I'd say we probably are prepping our tongue curving for the sh while we're making the closure of the T. So that's part of the co-articulation of it, that we yeah. make the T in closer to the place of the sh. So that's an anticipatory co-articulation. We're anticipating <laughs> the sh on the t. That is now, such a beautiful thing to say, anticipatory uh, co-articulation. I like that. Um, now, ch, ch, is, typically, in English at least, it's a brief sound. There, mm. the sh. The, the fricative portion of it, we think of fricatives, particularly final ones, having perhaps a little bit more length in a word like wish. The sh has perhaps a little bit more length, but we compare that with a word like which. That ch is probably a little bit more brief. It functions in timing a bit more like a stop plosive does. Yeah, I, I think that probably if you amassed data, you'd find that you'd have two sort of overlapping clouds of length that the ch is generally shorter, but some of them have longer releases, and that sh is generally longer, but some of them are quite short. And that's something we've encountered plenty of times before, that there are overlapping clouds of variant articulation always. So the affricate, so the affricative, they, they are, they, uh, they have this prefix af on the, the word fricate. Uh, um, do you know what the prefix af does to a word? Is it? I am assuming that it's uh, short for ad uh, or to. So with friction, a root. A, yeah. So a stop or something with in addition to the friction. Uh, but clearly, though, I haven't looked this up, and I'm going to have to. Uh, but whether it shows up in the etymological dictionary is a, is a weak bet. I I have to say a little anecdote about this. The f one of the first times I taught this, I introduced them very rapidly and uh, moved on. And the next week, the students asked me for the uh, for more information about the African 
consonants. <laughs> Uh, and I really didn't know what they were talking about because I assumed they were talking about some obscure, international, non-English sound. Clicks, perhaps. Yes, perhaps. And finally, you know, they kept saying, no, the African, the African ones, you talked about them. Finally, I figured out they meant Africate. So spit yeah. that T out when you introduce it. Exactly. And, and write it on the board. Uh, the etymology, probably from German, Africata, uh, from Latin, Africata, feminine, Africatus, past participle of Africare, to rub against, ad, Africare, so against, to rub against. Mm, to rub so against. there you go. I was right and yet didn't actually have any useful information. <laughs> That's the state I strive for. So, so yeah, we've built this one. This very common one out of a t, which we have, and a sh, which we have. And I think this is a really interesting moment for students to, to realize what it means for something to have a phonemic identity. Because they can pull apart the physical action and say, oh yeah, when I say church, I'm stopping and then I'm exploding into friction. But I perceive that as one sound. It may help that in English it's often written with two letters, and so thinking of it as a double something is already in people's heads. Hmm. Uh, but I, I don't usually try to encourage that since it's slightly confusing. And it's not the case of the voice version of the same affricate, j, which is precisely the same but voiced. That is to say, we are preparing a post-alveolar sort of bunching, grooving action. We're closing off at the alveolar ridge and then letting our voice start right as we build up pressure and release, making j. I think that because in English that sound is spelled in a variety of ways but with only one symbol usually, usually. Uh, it confuses people. Hmm. Uh, on the other hand, and I do find this is the case with students who are not so good with symbols, a, a large percentage of them at the end of the phonetics work say, oh, I'm so thankful to have all this because it's not as confusing because the symbols only mean one thing. Yes. Uh, it's a lot easier than spelling. So here's, a, here's one of our Classic glossonomia questions. Uh, Eric, are those the only Africans that we might find? What a great question. Uh, <laughs> you know, in, in English, those are the only Africans, things that we call Africans. And we could talk about things that might be Africate-like. Um, but in other languages, and I think this is the answer to the question you're looking for, are there other Africans? Yes, there are. There are. And, um, you know, some, sometimes uh, it's good to think of ones that people know right off, you know, because they know words. So, for instance, the German word for penny is pfennig. Uh, and that's got that interesting PF spelling. And that's an example of a non-English uh, affricate uh, pair that uh, people, I think, you know, there's that sewing machine company, the Pfaff Sewing Machine Company, P-F-A-F-F. -F -F. Um, and that, that's an example of a non-English example. Or the word 
that we have for the 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 old Russian ruler, a tsar, which is uh, could be written CZ or TS or TZ. There's so many different ways of spelling or it. Or a tsunami. Tsunami in, from Japanese, sure. Um, so there are lots of examples, I think, that people know from other languages. Um, if I have a student of Polish origin, I almost always get a question about the difference between ch and and uh, three subtle differences in affricates that are present in Polish that most English speakers hear as uh, the same sound, essentially. Um, Would you go through them, uh, talking about them in terms of their articulation? Sure. So the if we start with, they, they share the same sound that we have, ch. So that's uh, not surprising to them. So uh, that's an alveolar plosive exploding into a post-alveolar fricative. Right. So they, I think they typically call them by the fricative, so the voiceless post-alveolar fricative, ch. Uh, the v- voiceless alveolopalatal, um, or alveolopalatal. Um, yeah, I think so. Alveolo. And, and that combining form, alveolo, tells us that both things are happening, yeah? Right, yes, alveolopalatal. So it starts again in the T placement, but the symbol for the second one, it's the curly-tailed C. So that means I've got the front edge of my tongue on my gum ridge and the blade of my tongue smooshing up into that post-alveolar place onto my palate. So it's going to give it a slightly more back feeling. Uh, And finally, the... The third one, in Polish written as CZ, uh, is the retroflex affricate. So the tongue curls more off the gum ridge, so it's more the underside of the tongue. And we get ch, ch, which has a slightly lower sound to it in terms of the, the sound profile of it. Ch, ch. We had talked during the R episode about the spectrographic differences between R's, and since retroflexion is part of R, that kind of makes sense, that there's yes. a, probably a lowered formant there. Yes. So, so those are that, the voiceless versions, and then there are the three voiced versions, which are exact parallels. So you get J, like the one we're familiar with, the alveolopalatal, which is J, and the final, the retroflex affricate, J, with the lower quality. And those, for Polish speakers, are distinct enough that you could have three different words that have those as their beginnings, and they are not confused with one another. Indeed. And I have so, to say, to to me, they sound like allophones. I, I, uh, yeah, I can make too. them consciously, but if I hear them, they're all the same thing to me. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, the practice of going through and trying to make them and trying to reconstruct the articulatory action, I think is really, really valuable. Uh, But finally, we may be too late as English speakers to really fully perceive them in listening. So that's why they don't end up on my quizzes very often. Mm. Uh, Or or I have to be subjected to students trying to look into my mouth. (laughs) So can we talk about the phonetics of this? Does that seem like the next step, the symbols? Yes, the symbols, sure. So 
The symbols for the plosives are very straightforward. The T is a T. The T is a T. And the D is a D. As we can recall from the sh -zh episode, the sh symbol is a long, a lengthened S. An S which ascends above the line and below the line with a long bar in between. And the, the so-called esh. Exactly. The je, the esh, is uh, sort of like a angular top three sunk fairly low on the, uh, on the line so that there's a z-ish bit which is pretty much the same height as a z but with a long loop underneath the line. Does that make sense? Yes, I think the the uh, edge comes from a cursive Z or Z mm -hmm. uh, that has been turned into a more uh, print-like form with the Z start to it. So when we write these out by hand and we're indicating there's an affricate, we put a little ligature mark over the top of them. Although with modern typefaces, there are new symbols that I end up using when I'm printing things where the two symbols are sort of welded together, uh, that they're continuously connected. The, 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 the uh, ligature doohickey is sort of an eyebrow over top, mm -hmm. uh, and sometimes people would put that eyebrow underneath so it looks a little bit like a little smile underneath. Um, those are called tie bars, and the term comes from music, of course, mm -hmm. tie bar. And I always ask my students when they're writing these to do the tie bar. And I don't. I, well, we're, I think we're about to get into the reason why they could be confused. Uh, but I'm trying to emphasize the fact that I want them to think about it as a single phoneme. And I don't ask them to do the welded together symbols like the printed version because I think that's too fine-grained a thing for a handwritten symbol to try to represent. That the tie bar is there for them to let me know that they know that it's a single sound. Right. So, and, and would you say that you don't have them do it for simplicity's sake? Um, uh, for simplicity's sake and also f the, the rare occasions where a T bumps into an S or a D bumps into an edge where there isn't a space between them because uh, mm -hmm. there's a syllable boundary. I suggest that if there's confusion that they could often drop in a little period to indicate a syllable break. Yeah. Um, so there are, there are other ways of, if there's a concern that I might read it as, a, as an affricate, that they could indicate that it's not an affricate. Um, so I've, I, to be honest, I can't think of an instance where I've been confused um, because typically um, there is a, usually a, a morpheme boundary um, that's visible in the way they, they put those uh, symbols on the page. So that seems to draw us into this question of what makes an affricate an affricate. And uh, right before we started, I asked you this question, is the distinction only a phonological one or a phonological one? And by that, I mean to, to say that if I say t, sh, and they are along a boundary, as you say, a morphological boundary, some sort of stem boundary, I guess is the word, 
they they are distinct in terms of how they mean, but they might be pronounced in the same way. If I say, acha, acha, there may be uh, a sequence of articulation in which a stop plosive stops and then a new fricative starts. And and that's identical, even though what's intended in the language is these two separate sounds. In English, we have a hard time coming up with that because we always make that clear. Uh, we distinguish between the affricate and a sequence of separate phonemes. Yes, the stop fricative sequence, uh, we can do things often to the stop to reinforce the separation from it uh, and the fricative so that we can reinforce the stop, um, which will, by, by using a glottal stop as well, which can help change the release of that T yeah. into the fricative. And so you can hear a subtle difference. Let's, let's actually put an example out there. Uh, but sherry is a very nice drink. Actually, it's appalling. I hate it. And if I say, but sherry, terrific, but sherry, I've exploded the T with aspiration, and therefore it's impossible for it to be connected to the, af to the fricative because it has its own separate air release. If I say, but sherry, but sherry, I'm stopping and making no audible release, but sherry, even if I do that very quickly, but sherry, but sherry, I am not building up any pressure in that plosive that then explodes into the fricative. I could, as you just suggested, add a glottal reinforcement, but sherry, but sherry, I guess that's a, somebody's name, but sherry, why are you doing this? If, however, I say, but, but cherry cola, and I'm making the, the second word into cherry, I'm making that a distinct articulation in which the explosion of the t into the sh is its own sound. And I may do a sort of, I guess, geminated, I might stop the T of but and keep it stopped, but then begin my explosion into the sh separately. But shit, so I can't say it now, but cherry, but cherry. So for me, in terms of recognizing it as an affricate and recognizing that phoneme, ch, it's vital that the explosion into friction be its own discrete unit. Does that make sense? I think so, yes. And, and you and I, I think, would never confuse those two ideas. So if we're drinking things and we have cherry and sherry and we have a sequence, what cherry do you want? Even uh, even if we even if we were going really quickly, but yeah. cherry, but cherry, but cherry, we would they would not start to sound alike. And it's because we're using these strategies of separation. Either we're we're stopping more overtly or exploding before we move forward, or I mean, really, it's about preserving the moment of explosion into friction that makes us hear the affricate, I think. Yeah, and uh, the Wikipedia article on this is 
is valuable, I think, and they talk a little bit about that process of using the glottal stop. They they roll out that great word we've used before, debuccalization, uh, <laughs> pulling the consonant out of your mouth and putting it in your your glottis so that the t becomes a glottal stop. That can happen. Um, but the, the, they, they also have this thing about rise time, which I think is valuable. And I'll just read what they say. The yeah. acoustic difference between affricates and stop plus fricative sequences is rate of amplitude increase of the friction noise. So that ch in but cherry, the friction noise gets loud quickly. We get to a loud burst on the ch. And that and indicates a buildup in pressure. It that does. It's the explosion that counts. And then, and so they call this the rise time, how quickly we can get to that friction noise. Affricates have a short rise time because they can get to that loud friction noise rapidly, whereas stop fricatives have longer rise time because we, we slow that down. So we get to the, the, the strength of the fricative a little bit later so that we're indicating the difference between the affricate and the stop uh, friction, fricative pair. So if I say, what shall I do? What shall I do? The sh is slow to grow. What shall I do? What shall I do? What shall I or do? What chalice shall I use? Yeah. What chalice? What chalice? What chalice? No matter how relaxed I get, what chalice? What chalice? What chalice? It's what still. Chalice. <laughs> You'd have to be pretty drunk. Exactly. So that's stuff in that chalice. resistant to assimilation or uh, resistant to relaxation, that phonemic distinction is. We know an affricate when we hear it because of that feature of explosiveness or, or fast rise time. Yeah. But, I mean, when we have a, a pair, like uh, at the end of a word, nuts, the T-S cluster is... Uh, Phonemically stop fricative, but essentially phonetically it is the same t release. I think, that's I think true. that uh, we would get in in a word like tsunami. Um, we we don't differentiate there because there's even though there's a morpheme boundary nut nuts um, that release the there's less of a rise time difference in that. So nuts tsunami. See, that one, because we don't use the phonemes, usually in English, it doesn't have a phonemic identity, and so I have no reason to distinguish between... I, I don't know if my rise time is going to be any different in nuts and tsunami. Because I don't... It, it, at least it doesn't make any significant or any difference I can detect. Tsunami, nuts. Yeah. So I, I'm not sure. It'd be really interesting to find out whether people uh, who speak languages that make that distinction. But I, I suspect there might even be a difference if, you know, um, Scott said something and Scott, Scott is nuts. The T-S release of Scott is nuts is different than the T going into said something, Scott said something. We're going to get a different kind of rise time. So... Scott's Consonant name. clusters at the ends of words are quite different than that split word boundaries. Yes. yes? Scott said slow rise time, nuts, yeah. fast rise time. That behaves like an Africa, doesn't it? It does. It does. So that there are these things that we have that are actually quite similar to Africa. 
Now, can we talk about things like um, the word tr try? Yes. It, it, tr in a way, try. this is sort of an unintentional affricate in English. Uh, we talked when we talked about the R phoneme, the initial consonant R, how sometimes you get a, a fricativizing of it. Uh, and in Czech, we talked about the Z sound in Dvořák, which is a voiced post-alveolar fricativized approximant. Ah, it's like an R, but it's so close in articulation that it's become a fricative. There's also something that happens, as I believe we talked about when we talked about plosives long ago, unvoiced plosives can have a tendency to de-voice the following continuant. So if I say, uh, you, and then I put a P in front of it and I say pew, I'm going to tend to de-voice the Y, the palatal approximate. So I'll get pew. In this case, if I say ru, I, I have a voiced r. And then I'm going to tend, I think, if I say true, to devoice that alveolar approximate. What I might also do, though, and this is what we're talking about, is I might fricativize it as well. True. True. Leading to something that sounds an awful lot like our affricate, our post-alveolar affricate, chew. Yes. And True. I think that many true. of my students would want to write the pronunciation true as a sequence of affricate t sh followed by voiced approximate r r. But I actually think that what's happening there is that the r articulation is happening early enough that it's really an unvoiced fricativized alveolar approximate approximate r. Ay, Dios mío. So how would we write that symbolically? No problem with the T. That's a T. Then I think that we would go well, to... Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back to that, but go All ahead. Right. No problem with your T for now. Uh, yeah, I, I know where you're going. Uh, then we've got this R symbol for the alveolar approximate, which is an upside-down R, a turned R. Then if we put a thumbtack underneath it, a T bar with the... Point pointing upwards underneath that R, then we're saying that it's articulated more closely and more like a fricative. But then we should also put a circle underneath it to say it's devoiced. Then I also think we should top it all off with a tie bar over the top so that we know that that's a, an Africa sequence. N now add one more Jenga bar to this by telling me what should happen to the T. Well, it seems to me that we have an anticipatory co-articulation going on and that the T is anticipating the the drawing back, if you will, the bunching, if it's a bunched R, of the of that R consonant. And so the we're moving into the post alveolar area. Now we could perhaps use one of those uh minus signs underneath it or a little T mm -hmm. pointing to the right um, to indicate that. Um, 
Will it go so far as to move into the retroflex T, mm. that is the T with the long tail True. curling to the right? Uh, it's probably a little ex- excessive. Because um, then we'd have to decide whether we were going to use a retroflex approximate R as well. Try, right, exactly. So uh, to me, when I compare RU with TRUE, I don't feel like my R in TRUE is significantly more close than the ruin the the are in true it's a, a little bit closer so we get more friction noise is that what your little t pointing up is about so you're suggesting that the devoicing alone would produce that yeah i mean we we have to go through this aspiration phase on the t and as we transition from the t into the r we're getting this place that sounds like a fricative. I think that that aspiration is entirely subsumed in most speakers into that R. Yeah. Now, that... I'm not saying that uh, you and I probably don't make it so vigorously as to make it sound like true. But I certainly have students who say true. 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 Another place where this sort of uh, unintentional affricate can occur is in the t y sequence. So Tuesday becomes Tuesday. And in that case, Tuesday, I, I think it's entirely morphed over into a post-alveolar approximate. Yes. And in that this case... Is, sorry, sorry, this is the classic yod coalescence action. Exactly. Right? And, and that's really a fronting of the... Uh, of the palatal approximant towards the, the alveolar ridge to make it post-alveolar. It's a, or it may just be that the involvement of the raised tongue tip for the T is making more of the frictiony space front. So instead of a sequence of T, Y, we get T, Tuesday. Yeah, you're thinking about it. I see that skeptical look on your face. <laughs> uh, I would, you know, for me, it's uh, it feels l- more like the equivalent of what we th- think of like, as a sound sh- substitution. That um, the the articulation of tu is less familiar than the ch uh, shape, and so culturally, the group that changes tu to chu. Uh, substitutes uh, a sound that's more familiar yeah, I, with I think the one we, that's less familiar. I think we agree on that. But what I'm suggesting is that they transitioned into that because of the forward influence of the T, probably also since we're talking about people with their lips corn, corners forward, one of the features of sh is lip corner advancement. So... I I agree that it's a substitution, but I think it's a substitution that is the end result of processes of articulation. Yes, that made it, in terms of uh, of performance and in terms of perception, closer and closer to the affricate ch. Yes, I, I guess you know um, if I imagine this sort of proto Cockney person uh, <laughs> evolving from the. The ooze of London. Um, the ooze of London. Uh, <laughs> that uh, tu, 
I mean, assuming that Tu became Chu, and that's how, uh, you know, I, I think that's what our belief is that Tu became Chu, uh, that uh, what that that process is that where's the tipping point where Tu becomes that the Afri- the the aspiration on the yod starts to sound more and more esh like to the point where we go, oh, that's a uh, an affricate. Uh, yes, and flips the, over. The answer is the tipping point is everywhere, always. <laughs> that you get to it quickly. Yeah, I, I think so. And the, to answer that question, you'd have to take a group of speakers and have them identify how they perceive that phoneme, and then have a group of listeners identify how they perceive those realizations of the phoneme to to see if see how people are self-identifying and thinking about the sounds that they're producing. Mm-hmm. Now, um, sorry, I just wanted to say that, you know, that that Yod coalescence, uh, though it might be less common in a word like tune in North America, we certainly have a fair bit of it going on with phrases like don't you, so don't you, uh, um, so, you know, that, that ooze spreads all over North America. Exactly. Or in the voice as... form. D- did you hear what he said? He said, did you, Jew. Uh, the, did you. The d y sequence is j everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is a normal process of, uh, of assimilation, I guess you would say, uh, in most English speakers, in most informal English speakers. Hmm. Uh, there's a terrific book by Linda Shockey about the pronunciation of everyday English, uh, talking about how we how we go about relaxing, and what the processes are that lead to it. and And I think that she she talks about this movement towards a fricative form of otherwise exploded sounds. So we we should expect to see lots of coalescence. I think. Mm-hmm. Because our articulators can't bounce away from each other that quickly, and so they create sound in the intervening space. Sound Patterns of Spoken English, I believe, is the name of that book. I'm writing it down because I, I don't know that book. It's a good one. You'll read it and realize that I'm probably paraphrasing from it frequently. <laughs> good to know your tricks, Phil. <laughs> exactly. So, okay, well... I think we, what else do we need to talk about? Well, we've talked about the phonetics. Uh, you, when you were talking about those odd Polish ones, uh, talked about the curly-tailed uh, C as the palato-alveolar uh, fricative. And you talked about the retroflex. In that retroflex affricate, we have a retroflex plosive. What's the fricative that it's moving into? Uh, it would be a retroflex fricative. So that would be uh, an S with a little tail that hooks to the right. So you get ch, um, and that's the CZ in Polish. So we have ch, a, a T with a hook below and an S with a hook below. And a D with a hook below yeah. and a Z with a hook below. So ch and j. Terrific. J or j. Um, now, those 
fit in with the pattern of English ones, and those are what we call sibilant affricates, that、mm. they pair a stop with a sibilant sound, a hissy sound. But there are non sibilant affricates as well. The Pfennig example、yeah. from German that I gave is a non sibilant one. So these are ones that typically release into fricatives like、um, an F or a. a What we think of in English spelling as a th sound, a theta, or an eth.、Um, Now, and,、uh, yep. there, there's an interesting point here because, of course, if you look on the chart, you'll see amongst other symbols, there's a simultaneous sh and h symbol. And、mm. that's not an affricate. That's a co articulation, but not an affricate. Right, because there's no stop component to、yeah. it. And, and that's the thing I think that we ought to take away from this is that affricates are sloppy explosions. They're explosions that explode into a, a fricative situation. And in that way, we get things that are like affricates in our releases of plosives. We get little isotopes of them all over the place. The, the Irish tendency to release T with a little s, t, but. Is an, an affricate in sense. And I get those amongst my own students. Usually there's one or two students whose final T is quite S like. Tss, tss, tss.、Um, I, I always pretend to be playing the hi hat、uh, to get people to make that sort of dental realization. And there are frequently one or two students who, who all their final T's are releasing in that. Splashy kind of way. And I, I think, and I'm sure that this is something that you've noted as well, I, I wouldn't be at all surprised to hear that a student who makes a splashy T, that they are making maybe a laminal fricative coming out of a T sound, may well have a lot of jaw tension as well, because the articulators are so closed they can't get away from each other. Yeah.、Um, Now, there are also some lateral fricatives, and a lateral fricative releases into an L like sound. So,、uh, in um, some um, indigenous languages,、uh, Native American, Native Canadian languages, we get these combinations、uh, usually written as TL or DL、mm -hmm. um, in spelling, but they are a release into a voiceless L that. Uh, in the IPA symbol, the belted L, the kind of L that we get in Welsh, <laughs> that voiceless fricative L.、Uh, so we get tl, tl. So、uh, the Nahuatl language has the tl right in the name of the language. It's so interesting because it is a case of lateral plosion in a way. We have a symbol for lateral plosion, but we don't use it here.、Uh, and the explosive part of it is not medial, not down the middle, but Out the sides. So we end up using symbols that don't quite describe what we're talking about. Yeah, so. Well, let's just stop for a second. Before that lateral release, the T is not lateral, it's a full closure of the T. And the,、right. the fact of a, a, an affricate is that the, the, the first part of it is really just the stop portion. And it's stopped medially as well as laterally, like all stopped T's. Indeed. So, the,、um, though the release is out the sides, the stop is down the center, just as it always has been. And the sequence of t 
l or is it turns into a fricative because of that explosion out the sides. It's not a. It's just like all of our others, is what I'm trying to say. Uh, and so we wouldn't necessarily want to use a lateral plosion symbol because that's describing something else. Well, yeah, I suppose uh, there are um, there are people who, in their practice of using phonetic symbols, they write affricates by making the release portion a superscript. Um, and that's something that's documented in the Wikipedia article as well. Yeah. Um, I don't think, I don't advocate that practice, but there are people who do it. Yes, it's but, confusing you know, because sometimes people use superscript letters to indicate optional pronunciations. Yes. And that can be confusing. When we, when we look at an English word pronounced in a, probably a fairly um, highfalutin <laughs> English way to say little with that lateral release, is that an affricate? I think little. that little, little, little has a brief moment of lateral aspiration. Uh, so if I needed to describe it, I, the way I would probably describe that is a T uh, followed by a syllabic L with a lateral le- release mark. And if I really heard some unvoiced fricative, I would make that little lateral release L with a belt on it Mm. uh, to indicate that distinction. It would have to be very fricative, I think, for it to sound like an affricate. Little, little. And uh, we just want to get the release to be lateral and to get onto an L, little. So if I'm saying little, the little Nuatl boy, little Nuatl, I, I... isn't that the same sequence? I mean, I don't really speak any of these languages that have this phoneme in them. I think it's a little more fricative-y, and that the little, we should be getting onto voiced L. Um, yeah. yeah. After now, a brief, uh, unvoiced air explosion, but not a fricative right. air explosion. Yeah, I mean, that, that that voicelessness from the T is spreading into the L, so the aspiration of the T goes through that lateral plosion. I should so alert it, us. It is a moment of fricativeness. We've stepped over the line into prescription here, uh, and I just want to note that, that how we're saying one ought to say little is within the context of some particular accent or speech skill for the stage. Uh, right. It's... In, not inherently the way one ought to pronounce it. Uh, and it's a difficult skill for our students to, to master, and so there's an ought there, too. Our students ought to be able to deftly execute a whole range of articulations that involve this lateral plosion. Right. Now, there are languages that differentiate between certain kinds of affricate clusters and the way that that uh, fricative portion is released. So they differentiate uh, ejective versions Mm -hmm. from regular versions. So uh, remind us, if you will, Phil, what is an ejective? An ejective is a non-pulmonic sound. That is to say, something other than the force of air from the lungs is the stream of energy on which the sound is riding. And in this case, an ejective is a 
an egressive sound, and it's a glottalic sound. So, whoa, whoa, I know, <laughs> non-pulmonic, not from the lungs. So where's it coming from? It's coming from the moving of a column of air from the glottis upwards, lifting the glottis rapidly and compressing that space. So it, that's why it's glottalic, and it's egressive because it's sending it outward. So. And and it's so easy for our students to get this because they've all of them done some beatboxing. Right. So the that little explosion of sound without air from the lungs is something they usually can grab a hold of pretty quickly. And yeah, another quick way in is to say "hold your breath" and then say "ch." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That if if there's no airflow. You're making an yeah. egressive sound. They have to be able objective. to distinguish between whether there's an open flow of air or a closed uh, tube that's being manipulated. And again, I'll, I'll make uh, the case again for this. That's Even if there's, the students are not going to be using that sound at all, it's so interesting for them to explore it because they get an idea of what their articulators are doing. So, ejective. So, so explain to me again. I actually don't have the Wikipedia in front of me here. So, what is this ejective affricate? So, uh, there are some languages. Uh, I'm not even sure how you pronounce this word. Khoisan, K-H-O-I-S-A-N, uh-huh. languages. Uh, there are African languages like oh, <laughs> uh, that have. Uh, it's, it's not Khoisan. Like, yeah, it, oh, maybe, but it's K-H-O-I-S-A-N, not Kosa, huh. yeah, Khoisan. But they are South African uh, that are reported to have differences between ejective affricates and non-ejective uh, affricates. So you can get um, something like, uh, so the difference between... Ta and ta ta. Ta, yeah. Got it. Ta. So ta, uh, sorry. Ta and ta. Yes. So uh, either it's pulmonic all the way through, ta. Yes. That is to say, there's ta. no stop. Uh, the flow is coming from the lungs. The buildup of pressure behind the t is from the lungs, ta. And the other one, ta is a squeeze of the vocal tract from the glottis upwards, followed by the pulmonic flow coming afterwards. Ah, uh, right. Wow. And often, to me, it sounds a little bit like there's a, gl- a glottal stop release that goes into the vowel. Uh, it's almost like we're hearing ah, uh, because the glottis has to be closed during the ejective portion. Uh. Do you get what I'm saying? Uh, yeah, absolutely, because you... Uh, you're using the tube of the vocal tract closed at the bottom at the glottis in order to generate that flow. And since it's closed, you then need to begin to flow air past it. And I suppose it's theoretically possible to simply fluidly open the glottis. But if you've got some pressure differential there, you'll hear, feel that explosion at the glottis as well. Right. Sa, t, t, ah. Uh, I'm trying to smooth it out, but I don't know if it's smoothed out in the languages that use it. Yes. 
You know, I now I'm looking over this again. Those South African languages that do what, 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 why they're special is apparently they're supposed to have voiced ejective affricates, but I'm not exactly sure how they could do that because to do an ejective, your vocal folds can't vibrate. So I don't know exactly how you could have. Uh, perhaps it's like you have a voiced sound that precedes the ejective. So they give the example of D T S ejective. So it's you'd be going uds, uds. Ah, so that it's uh, uds. Uh, in the previous symbol mm-hmm. syllable uds. Uh. Yeah, or perhaps we get that slight pre-voicing that you can get before a release of a D. Yeah, so you can you know how you can make a D but not release it. Mm-hmm. Yes, and the pressure builds up to a point where the vocal folds will no longer f- vibrate, and then do an ejective TS on the end of that. That yeah. <laughs> for our next trick, yes. <laughs> it does sort of sound like party tricks, doesn't it? So, the, the, but there there is another thing that they're talking about is, and that is uh, that affricates are commonly aspirated. Um, so that they have this puff of air that we associate with them. But sometimes they also talk about um, murmured mm. ones. And what generally do phoneticians mean when they say murmured? Yeah, murmur is, is if I'm getting it right, a sort of breathy voice mm-hmm. uh, that it's not fully phonated, but phonated with breathy voice. So you'd put a double dot underneath it, I imagine. Uh yeah, they seem to in the here. They it looks like they used the the dentalized symbol, which I think is wrong. But they, they've sh- they've shown sort of a prenasalization. I don't know whether it's just that the font is so small here. I can't make out what. I'm I'm following you onto Wikipedia here, and I imagine that those listening at home, if they're not on the stairmaster, might be doing the same thing. Yeah, it looks like a little. Either a dentalized mark. No, that's. There's a little underbar that they've used, hmm. but I don't think that's the right symbol. I'm looking for it now. All right, so those are the adjective forms. Pre nasalized, that I understand. Yeah, that does seem to be a dental uh, or a, and a laminal symbol. Uh, laminal. The, uh, no, sorry. Laminal is a full box. Dental is right. the... Well, is that little minus underneath a retraction sign? Yeah, that does not seem to be a, a, a murmured symbol there. Yeah, so maybe they're just out, not... I would have thought it was ...annotating the, the murmured nature of it. Yeah. Well, we can save that for another episode, perhaps, uh, when we deal with... Yes, I think we've gotten mired down in... Details, details. But if you want to explore non-English affricates, I highly recommend people visit this uh, this page on Wikipedia because there's a whole long list of them. I don't think we should go through each and every one of them. But, uh, you know, they, they, we tend to think of them as happening in the alveolar, post-alveolar region. And it's kind of fun to explore velar affricates, things like akha, akha. Um, and those are tricky to do, but kind of fun to play with. Indeed. And and again, playing with them, working with them, trying to figure out in your own mouth what exactly is happening is a very valuable thing 
for developing your sensitivity to sound and articulation. Well, I think that brings us to the end of this How episode, Phil. excellent is that? I believe we've covered it to a, a full, uh, as full an extent as would be healthy. Yes, yes. So next week we will return to looking at uh, vowel R in our next episode. Whether that's next week or not, we'll see. Um, but uh, um, I think we can check this one off. And if people want to contact us, glossonomia at gmail.com. And we look forward to seeing you again. Thanks, Phil. Thank you so much. Until next time. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. <laughs>